There's this documentary from the University of Oregon from, I think, 1974 with this very powerful visual of a classic Dodge Charger patrol car showing up in front of Whiteboard Clinic. And then, you know, an officer gets out and takes the handcuffs off of a young person who looks to be in distress and then hands them over to Whiteboard Clinic staff then take him inside and, and support him as he, uh, you know, works through a really challenging experience. Welcome to Vardir. Today we're bringing you a conversation that begins to answer the question that haunts any discussion of reimagining community safety. If you do defund the police, however you're defining that, what do you do next? And in answer to that, Professor Sandra Susan Smith talks to Tim Black, who's the director of consulting at the White Bird Clinic. The White Bird Clinic runs a program in Eugene, Oregon called CAHOOTS, which in case you're wondering, stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. CAHOOTS is a first responder program that provides mental health first response for crises involving mental illness, homelessness, and addiction. They work alongside and as a substitute for the police. It's been a tremendously successful model and folks are trying to recreate it across the country. So now you have the opportunity to hear for yourself. Uh, welcome back uh, to those of you who are returning and welcome um, for those of you who are here for the first time. We at the PCJ are so excited to have uh, Tim Black join us today. Tim is the director of consulting at White Bird Clinic. He has a background in runaway and homeless youth harm reduction and street outreach. outreach. And he began working with CAHOOTS as a crisis intervention worker in 2010. He's here today to talk to us about the CAHOOTS operation and uh, how it's impacted the communities that so far have uh, taken up with using CAHOOTS as a way to deal with some of the mental health and substance abuse crises in their communities. His work with White Bird um, and CAHOOTS has put him in touch with cities across North America looking to implement services based on the CAHOOTS model. Some of you in this audience are probably here for that reason. Programs based on the CAHOOTS model have been implemented in Olympia, Washington, and Denver, Colorado. If I understand correctly, my own hometown of Hartford, Connecticut took up with CAHOOTS about a year or two ago. I'm not sure if you know what's going on there, but if you do, I would love to hear what's happening with my, my hometown. In addition to his work with White Bird Clinic, Tim also serves as the vice president of the board um, of directors of Eugene's community-supported shelters. So Tim Black, welcome to the program in criminal justice. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here with you all today. So why don't we start by having you tell us about the history of CAHOOTS. I know it's been in existence for about 30 years, but it's hard not to wonder how this took off, what, what, what was going on in Eugene at the time that made this a possibility. Sure. You know, when we, we talk about CAHOOTS, uh, in, which started in 1989, it's really hard to uh, separate you know, the origins of CAHOOTS from the rest of Whitebird Clinic, which is our, you know, kind of parent organization. Whitebird Clinic was founded in late 1969, recognizing some of the early impacts of deinstitutionalization, you know, looking at what was going on in our community with so many young people, you know, experimenting with psychedelics and, and just an inadequate response to the emerging needs in our community. Our, our founders, you know, had a, a background in academics, you know, psychology professors at the University of Oregon, you know, some, some other doctors and providers from our immediate community. And there was this real strong desire to find a way to actually, you know, really connect with folks that were in these behavioral health crises and, you know, experiencing addiction. And so with, with input from 
the the folks down at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic in San Francisco and outside in up in Portland, we started to operate the Wiper Sociomedical Aid Station here in Eugene and Springfield. Before we had a brick and mortar location, we were able to get a crisis line together. And as soon as that number started ringing, we were hearing about situations where it just made a lot more sense for us to actually be out there in the community, literally meeting somebody where they were at for, for some resolution and, you know, borrowing the vernacular of the, the late 60s and early 70s. We call that the bummer squad. And so before we even had, you know, a physical location of folks to go to when they were in crisis, we were leaning on this network of volunteers, of providers from our community to be a part of that bummer squad and respond with whatever supplies we could muster in a brown paper bag and a personal vehicle. For 20 years, we offered that bummer squad resource as we could with funding and staffing you know, varying. At the same time, law enforcement was really starting to trust Whiteboard Clinic as a destination to bring folks in crisis. There's this documentary from the University of Oregon from, I think, 1974 that really underscores that point with this very powerful visual of, you know, the kind of the classic Dodge Charger patrol car showing up in front of Whiteboard Clinic. And then, you know, an officer gets out and takes the handcuffs off of a young person who looks to be in distress and then hands them over to Whiteboard Clinic staff then take him inside and, and support him as he, uh, you know, works through a really challenging experience. So we were really became this trusted alternative to arrest or to hospitalization for local law enforcement. And the community just really trusted us, you know, to be able to provide this kind of bummer squad resource through some of our work at rock and roll concerts, you know, at festivals, at even some of the anti-war protests at the University of Oregon. We started to really recognize that an integrated health approach was was the most effective. You know, by having a pairing of a crisis worker and a medical personnel, you know, we were able to really handle anything that came across our plates at those festivals. Festivals, you know, in those kind of large crowd settings. You know, your your crisis worker can do crowd control and has clean hands to get medical supplies if there's a medical situation going on. Vice versa, you know, the EMT can really provide that that safety for the scene while the crisis worker really engages with somebody directly. And so, you know, through that that kind of proving ground, we really honed in on this integrated health approach. And then in the late 80s, as community policing was taking off, the Eugene city manager approached us and said, hey, we see this amazing work that you're doing. We really value that that role that you are serving in our community and would like to find some ways to really kind of formalize that and provide a lot more structure and resources. And so that's how we ended up with a retired ambulance you know, an old police radio uh, and, uh, you know, officially started to offer services as cahoots on the 4th of July in 89. 89. Okay. So, so between, uh, so in the 1970s and 80s, that's when there was this kind of renegade <laughs> right. willing to do whatever joins the, the team, but it wasn't until 1989 when it became official. Absolutely. Um, and it was at that. So, so up until 1989 had this idea to pair the medic with the social worker or the crisis in intervention person, when did that emerge? That this duo with this? Yeah, that that duo really emerged probably in seventy two or seventy three. You know, this is this is twenty almost twenty five years before you know mobile mobile integrated health became part of EMS. Right, it was really just a recognition that what was working for us in these kind of complex you know, crowded environments of festivals and concerts that, that really translated well to working in unpredictable environments, being out in the streets and in an encampment, you know, in, in somebody's home. And, and it just, it just made sense, right? Treat the whole person at every intersection. There isn't, I, I can't think of a single physical health ailment that doesn't have some sort of behavioral health, you know, connection, right? You know, if you feel bad, you know, physically you feel bad, emotionally, you're probably going to feel bad, uh, you know, and for folks who might be coming from communities or families where, 
they were discouraged from talking about how they were feeling. You know, there's not that ability to really connect with, or, you know, discuss uh, what you're experiencing on that kind of behavioral health level. But if you can call and say, Hey, bummer squad, or, you know, Hey cahoots, I've, I've been having an upset stomach. I've been losing my appetite. It's been going on for a few weeks. And I would really like to talk to somebody about what I can do for my stomach. And then we start talking with you and you find out, okay, well, you lost your job. You know, um, you're getting ready to move, you know, there's tension with your partner, starting to get a full picture that there's more to this than just, you know, quit eating gluten every day, you know? And so that's, you know, so that really opens the door for us to become a lot more accessible to folks. You know, our, our work with uh, folks who are, you know, using substances, experiencing addiction, we need to have that medical component as a part of our response. You know, folks might be trying to avoid getting police involved. And so they have, they could have a friend who's overdosing and they want cahoots to come and talk about sobering and detox. But, you know, really what we end up doing is applying Narcan. And again, that's because folks are calling us because they feel safe enough to reach out knowing that we can handle, you know, a lot of these different situations that they might find themselves in. Yeah. Okay. So you, you've been quoted in the media as saying that the organization's success has not happened overnight. This didn't occur overnight. There are many small but important details to address and what you describe as a wide range of stakeholders to engage to effectively implement this, this approach that so many folks around the country want. How has CAHOOTS changed exactly or evolved in approach since 1989, although you might even want to take it back to 1974? What, what kinds of things emerged that CAHOOTS responded to that helped to shape the model that it, mm-hmm. that it is now? Sure. You know, our focus originally was really just on behavioral health and, and, and work and addiction. And as soon as we started to really engage in that work, you start to find all these different areas where there's a point of intersection with those kind of two primary goals. And we had to really shape our responses to address those, those intersectional points. And so over the years, we have seen our, our role as, you know, very kind of intermittent case managers, you know, for folks who are experiencing homelessness become a very huge part of our work. When we first started, you know, Eugene was a pretty quiet town, didn't have a very big homeless population. And, you know, you fast forward to today where we have the highest rate of homelessness per capita in the United States. And so when we've had to add these, you know, new services, new components to what Cahoots is doing, it's always been informed by the community, you know, either by us reaching out to partner agencies or uh, community leaders or receiving that feedback, you know, from, from those same groups unsolicited. And, and when we've, when we found a, a moment where there's something that we need to do better, there's something else that we need to be including, you know, we, we are working with our funders, you know, with those partners in traditional public safety to make sure that that can be a component of our services. You know, something that, that really stood out for me about five, six years ago, there was a lot of pushback from command at the police department around our medical responses and this real lack of recognition of how important it was to maintain that as a part of our response. Uh, and it was support from the medical community that really helped us reinforce, you know, and underscore why we needed to maintain that component in our services. So, so let me take us through like a typical call from, I, I want to say from beginning then, but you don't have to do that. What does this look like? Someone calls emergency 911 or whatever. What happens at that point? Sure. You know, so somebody's experiencing a crisis out in the community and we need to recognize first and foremost that that crisis is occurring because there's some sort of need that has gone unmet. Um, so that crisis occurs in the community. A call is placed to the public safety dispatch system, whether it's the individual themselves or a third party um, call is placed. Those same call takers who are answering the non-emergency police line, fire, EMS, the one, answering 911 
are also the ones who are answering those calls for Kahoot services. And so, you know, you, you contact public safety dispatch and they're going to be triaging that call for priority and urgency, as well as, you know, what's the best resource to send. So somebody might be calling in specifically for Kahoot's or they perceive their experience to be an emergency. And so they call 911 and say, I need the fire department to, you know, get Elvis out of my basement. That's a situation where Cahoots is probably going to be the most appropriate resource to, to deploy. And so those, you know, those dispatchers and the call takers really have that authority in collaboration with the Cahoots response teams to really determine, you know, what calls are going to be sent to us. When it's, when it's agreed that, you know, this is a call for a Cahoots response, the Cahoots response teams are being dispatched on the same priority channels as law enforcement. And are out just kind of patrolling. We're not some sort of on-call resource where we got to, you know, muster a couple of folks and get there within an hour. We're actively patrolling the streets. Um, a CAHOOTS team generally is going to be responding without other public safety resources. So without an ambulance, without a fire engine, definitely, you know, without police cars. And our objective is always oriented around recognition that the individual that's in crisis is the expert in their experience. And we have an obligation to listen, you know, use empathy, unconditional positive regard, and really engage uh, with that individual to find some immediate de-escalation and stabilization, and then look at what else that person might need to feel supported in the future. You know, all of our work is really oriented through the least intervention necessary. And so we really try not to be attached to outcomes uh, that aren't what the patient has identified. And there's always an intention to really try and resolve things where somebody is, you know, in the community, because we need to be really mindful of displacement. You know, if somebody has, if somebody's experiencing homelessness and they have finally found that camp where they can trust their neighbors to, you know, and, and they feel really secure there, the last thing that we want to do is yank them across town, drop them off the hospital where they're going to be for 45 minutes, and then have them try to figure out how to get back to that safe place that they finally found. You know, folks don't have a lot of access to the transportation in the first place. And so, you know, yeah, we just don't want folks stranded, you know? And so if we do need to take somebody somewhere, then that's going to be a free ride. Everything that Goose does is free of charge. And when we do take somebody to another facility, we're going to be accompanying that with a transfer of care you know, really engaging with the staff that are receiving that person in crisis and really talk about, you know, what it is that we hope to get out of that experience for the patient. We're going to empower that patient by really giving them as much information as possible about what the services are they're going to encounter. And then, you know, really finally, it's just a recognition that if they need to call us again, you know, that's not some sort of failure. That's just time for us to come back out and, and, and look at a different approach, you know? So we do that. Our, our teams do that for 12 hours a day for their shifts, you know, and around the clock to the tune of over 20,000 calls a year. So my understanding is that about 18% of the calls that come into 911 are then routed to cahoots. Correct. Um, and that in one year you received about 24,000 calls and mm -hmm. only about 1% of those did you need to, to bring in backup from police. Is yes. that Correct. Yeah. So is that because the, the, the it's I mean, it's mind boggling. M mm -hmm. Most people think that we really require the presence of police. And if we don't have them, that things will go awry. This suggests a really good kind of triage system that is enables you to kind of send the right people to the right to the right emergencies. What has been the relationship between police and the CAHOOTS team over the last, say, three decades? How And how has that evolved over time? Yeah, you know, when we first got the official formal cahoots started, there was a lot of apprehension. You know, the police were concerned that the hippies now had a dispatch radio, you know, and were running around on that same system. And for us, you know, the hippies on that system were, were kind of worried about, you know, potentially getting arrested or just what the implications were of, of having that much exposure to uh, the criminal legal system. 
a lot of that quickly dissipated though, as we started to engage in the work as first responders, you know, we may completely disagree. You know, we could be on, you know, polar opposite ends of the spectrum, but the fact that we're both in this system as first responders, you know, gives us a point of commonality. And so, you know, for the last 30 plus years, we've really built off of that, that foundation of recognizing that, that we have separate, you know, roles within first response, but that we are, you know, ultimately first responders and are going to need to be able to trust each other, even if we don't agree. And so it's, you know, it's really kind of been about trust. This past year has been an opportunity to really, uh, I think, exercise that trusting relationship, even when we disagree. When the Black Lives Matter protests really started to gain momentum here uh, in Oregon in May last year, we sat down with the chief of police and said, look, we're not going to discourage our our employees from going out and exercising their First Amendment rights. You know, you're going to see faces in the crowd that are going to be on the van tomorrow night, you know, and we need your officers to understand that, you know, this is part of our work. And the response from the chief was, we expect to see your members out in the streets. You know, there's, and I think we're really fortunate, you know, there's a lot of privilege that comes with the fact that locally our law enforcement understands our objectives, you know, to, to keep them out of these situations and is supportive of that. You know, chief Skinner has said several times that he doesn't want officers in Eugene responding for mental health calls. He doesn't want officers out in homeless encampments. You know, I, this, this is not their work and they shouldn't be doing it. And so, you know, we, yeah, we've been able to really kind of capitalize on that. And, uh, you know, I think that's a really kind of special thing. It's not something that we experience with our, our partners in, in the city of Springfield, um, which is a much more, you know, conservative community where, you know, that just this past year, they paid out four and a half million dollars to the family of Stacey Kenny, who was killed by police at a traffic stop while in a behavioral health crisis. Trust. Is what, is what you say is one of the three critical things needed in order to make a system like this work. Eugene, Oregon, um, as I understand it, is predominantly white, about 83% white, 4% Asian. Black, blacks represent about 2% of the population. Written materials from CAHOOTS indicates that uh, trust from the population served as essential for success. So is community culture of care. This leads me to wonder about how CAHOOTS will be, how successful or effective it will be in more diverse cities. I mentioned that I am from Hartford, Connecticut, and that Hartford is implementing CAHOOTS and began that process about two years ago. It's one of these cities and it's doing it to address its mental health and substance abuse issues. There are two questions or set of questions that I have about this. How is CAHOOTS, the CAHOOTS model developed in Eugene and, and maybe to some extent also Springfield being tailored to racially diverse cities with a history of racial antagonism and distrust between police and communities of color. That's the first. If you want, I can let you answer that or I can answer sure. that. Let's, let's, let's dive into that a little bit, you know, because that's something that really comes up a lot. I, we, what we have built here in Eugene and Springfield is something that we built for our community. You know, when, when we were designing this program, when I was, you know, working out on the van in 2010, I wasn't thinking about what this was going to look like in Hartford or, you know, Miami or San Francisco. And, and that's important because this is not a cookie cutter program. This isn't some sort of one size fits all thing. There are aspects of this service that we provide to our community that could be and should be emulated in, in other municipalities. But if, if somebody is spending the time with me as a consultant from Wiper Clinic talking about this, first and foremost, I'm a white cis man. I am not the only person you should be talking to about police reform and you know criminal justice work. Um, but really, if they're going to spend an hour talking with Wiper Clinic and Cahoots, they need to be spending 10 hours with their own community members. You know, where areas where we really see a lot of 
early success in either the planning stages or initial implementation are communities that have really invested the time to understand how this service is going to affect impacted communities, uh, where there is adequate and majority representation of lived experience within the advisory panels or, you know, coalitions that are forming to really support these endeavors. Thank you. you. Know, yeah. Okay, so th there is one other aspect of this that you mentioned to deal in part with, the, or maybe wholly uh, with the trust question. It's been reported that there's been a creation of a separate phone line for cahoots that would be disconnected from the police department. Can you elaborate uh, on this and suggest other ways of developing trust? I mean, it would build on um, aspects of what you just said, especially for it, or in the context of understandably distrusting communities. Yeah, you know, for a long time, we have just said, okay, we're using the public safety number because generally folks in the United States are conditioned to call the police when they're in crisis. Recognizing now that, that that's really coming from, you know, a, a white perspective, you know, where it is safe for me to call police when I'm in a situation where I need support. And that's something that we were not, I think, quick enough to really recognize within our community here. And with the feedback that we're getting from our advisory committee and, you know, other community leaders, we are really pushing for shifting the CAHOOTS point of access over to 988. And so this is, you know, that initiative that the FCC started to work on in 2019, we're expecting rollout in 2022. But what this would do is really put us into a more integrated crisis response system. You know, we're just like you call 911 when you break your leg or you're having a heart attack. You know, when you're in that behavioral health crisis, when you're feeling suicidal, you would call 988. That's not just for cahoots. That's, you know, another way to get connected to crisis staff, you know, who can work with you over the phone if that's going to meet your needs, you know, would connect us with crisis stabilization centers and really start to create you know, a separate first response system, you know, even CIT International talks about the fact that having police be so integrated into how folks access crisis right now is further reinforcing the assumption that police need to be a part of these responses, you know, and is really putting more of the obligation to address the rampant mental health problems in our, in our nation through criminal legal endeavors rather than through the lens of public health. Right. Thank you for making that point so clearly. So I have to admit that I marvel at both, well, at how very cheap it is to run your, at least uh, Cahoots and Eugene, I think it's about $2 million, mm -hmm. um, how effective it seems to be and how efficient Cahoots is. And this is all in some ways relative to what would otherwise be offered by the police. But also I marvel at how much it saves costs for other public institutions. So your materials make it very clear that the programs in Eugene and Springfield, it basically leads to major cost savings, upwards of $8.5 million for police, $14 million for ER costs. These are just estimates, but but it, it actually makes me wonder if these, these estimates are, these are underestimates because of how you calculate these savings. First, it seems like in a significant amount of the work that CAHOOTS does likely diverts people away from jails as well. You kind of mentioned it in in, the, in, in some of the materials or gets mentioned in some of the materials, but doesn't get highlighted or doesn't seem to be incorporated into costs. If it is the case that 60% of Cahoots' clients are homeless and 30% live with severe and persistent me mental health um, illnesses, that, that this, this is what we're talking about in terms of these frequent users and the costs associated with pretrial detention, arrest and pretrial detention and the, the constant of it, that's huge. I'm assuming that that cost is not 
incorporated into this. One, one assumes that because of cahoots, there's been a reduction in arrests, jail admissions, detentions, and all of the collateral consequences that are associated with that for individuals, their families, and com communities. I wonder if you want to speak to that before I, I suggest another cost savings that results because of cahoots. Sure. You know, it's it's been it's been interesting, despite all of this collaboration that we've had with law enforcement, you know, over the, the 30 plus years that we've been doing this, whenever it's come time to really say, okay, help us, you know, verify, you know, you know, quantify and verify the financial impact that we're making on, you know, on the criminal legal system in our county, it's crickets, you know, and so these estimates that we've put out there are our best, you know, our best estimates, but, you know, to, to really, I think, get a, you know, more independent lens on that, we're working with outside evaluators to do some program analysis so that we can start to get, you know, a bigger body of literature that's more than just, you know, our own nonprofit, you know, putting those estimates out there. But, you know, that's, you know, I think that, but, you know, what you're bringing up really speaks to our role in prevention, you know, and the need for mobile crisis to, to really support folks from falling through the cracks all the way. You know, there's, there's a kind of a common saying here in our community that cahoots is the threat. We don't have a social safety net. We have a bunch of hammocks. And so cahoots is the thread that's rolling around town, stitching all those hammocks together, you know, and as a result, you know, there are all of these, you know, these, these cost savings, these, you know, beneficial impacts that we have in those traditional systems. We just, we just need their help to really underscore. Yeah. You know, and kind of quantify what that impact is. Well, you just let me know. I have a few friends here at Harvard who might be willing some of these estimates. Here's the second way that I think that there might be these huge cost savings to your community. So to start, I'll say in 2018, Chicago spent basically $113 million to settle police misconduct cases. New York City taxpayers spent a whopping $230 million to pay off 6,400 um, plus lawsuits uh, settled against the NYPD in 2017 and 2018. I bring this up because it would seem that to the extent that you can significantly reduce the number of encounters, police citizen encounters, you probably are also reducing the number of opportunities that things could go very badly, people get hurt or harmed and these lawsuits take hold. You mentioned a bit earlier, a lawsuit that led to over $5 million um, payout. It would seem that this would also be one of the cost savings associated with, with implementing a cahoots kind of model. At, at the very least, because it significantly reduces the amount of citizen police contact, which, you know, then reduces the likelihood of any of these kinds of incidences happening. Have, have you all thought about the extent to which cahoots might actually be benefiting the community in this way as well? You know, absolutely. And that's something that comes up uh, in our negotiations, you know, with our contract is, you know, what is it? in those kind of untold costs, you know, the ones that you're not planning that you can't predict, you know, the settlements. And um, that's, that's something that came up when we were really looking at how the city of Springfield was going to fund us. And, you know, as we saw, despite those conversations, you know, we still had, you know, death by police. And, and it's something that, you know, we definitely are bringing up as we engage with other communities. And it's something that we hear from law enforcement advocates, you know, even is that these services being implemented effectively, you know, reduce that liability, you know, reduce that potential for, you know, a violent and deadly police encounter as a result of a behavioral health crisis. Yeah, it's it's an incredible program. Um, thank so I thank you so much for all that you do, all that you have done for your community, for the the inspiration that you've been to so many of us across the country, um, for providing a vision for how to move forward without the presence of police and some of the harm that they bring to so many of our communities. I really appreciate it. I've learned so much by talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, and Sandra, this has been a fantastic conversation. Just just a pleasure. Yeah. Well, 
That's it for Voir Dire, conversations from the program in criminal justice at the Harvard Kennedy School. Thanks to Brian Welch for supporting the podcast and to Poddington Bear for creating our theme music. We'll see you soon.